Well, I grew up here in Wichita, as you know, but when I was 19, I moved away to Pensacola, Florida to go to college, and uh, I, I waited till I was 19. I took a year off to find myself, which turned out to be kind of a waste. I discovered I was always very nearby. Um, but as a college student, as a first-year college student, one of the coolest things that could ever happen would be for me to come back to my room and find a voicemail on the phone, listen to it. It'd be my mom or my dad saying, I've sent you something. Oh, we've sent you a little package, right? And college students in this room, you know what I'm talking about. When you get that package from home, it's a special deal because you know that your mom and dad not only know what you need because you're away at school and they kind of know what students need when they're away, but they also know what you like. And so you have a pretty good sense that when I open this box, it's going to be pretty great stuff. Or maybe they send an envelope with the very best kind of gift for a college student that's green with pictures of presidents on it, right? And all the college students said, amen, right? Um, but it was a special thing for me to get a gift because I knew how much my parents cared about me. And I want to start off the talk by asking you, what would it be like for you if you got a message from Jesus and he said, I'm sending you something. I got a, I got a gift I'm sending your way, right? Now, obviously, if you've been around New Spring for any length of time, you know that we believe that the biggest gift that God ever gives anyone is the gift of a second chance, because when Jesus died on the cross, it was an opportunity for those of us who had been separated from God because of the things that we've done wrong to be reconciled to him and to have a future in heaven. That's the biggest gift that God ever gives anyone. But I'm talking to you if you've already received Jesus Christ and you already have a relationship with him. Did you know Jesus wants to give you another gift? He's saying to you, I'm sending you something. Put a, little, put a little gift in the mail. I'm sending it your direction. As a matter of fact, in John chapter 14, verse 27, this is what Jesus says to his followers. He says, I'm leaving you with a gift. Well, now think about this. Jesus talking to his disciples. Jesus is God. I mean, he could give them anything. He could say, I'm giving you a gift, physical health for the rest of your life. I'm giving you a gift, unlimited uh, wealth. You're going to have more money than you know what to do with. Or you could say, I'm going to give you the gift of, of healing people. I'm going to give you the gift of performing miracles. I mean, think about all the things that he could give them. And to you, because this is a gift that he's not only giving to his disciples, but he's giving to everyone who follows him. That would include you and me. But think about this. Of all the things that Jesus could give us in a gift, this is what he decides to give us. He says, I'm going to give you peace of mind and heart. That means that of all the things that Jesus thinks that we need, topping the list is a healthy mind, right? He says, I'm going to give you peace of mind, and this is peace for our thoughts and heart, peace for our emotions. And he says, I'm going to give you such a great peace, it's a, it's a gift the world can't give. It's better than any kind of mental health program the world could give you. It's a cut above, and he says, so don't be troubled or afraid, and if you think about it, it kind of makes sense that Jesus would think this is the thing that we need more than anything else because once you kind of start to consider it, it makes sense that this is sort of the hinge on which everything else in life swings. If a person is uh, mentally healthy, if they have a healthy mind, uh, then their family relationships are going to be better. Uh, their work productivity is going to be better. Their ability to make a difference in this world is going to be better. And more than that, they're going to enjoy life more. We've been saying that if, you have a, if you're healthy, your, your world expands. If you're not healthy, your world shrinks. And that's what we're talking about. God wants us to have not just a, a, a physical health. He wants us to have mental health as well, which is a little bit of a challenge in our culture. Did you know in the United States, one out of five adults has a diagnosed mental health issue? One out of five 
That means that this room seats about 1,500 people. That means when it's full, there are 300 people in this room-ish that have a diagnosed mental health concern. And beyond that, I mean, that's just one layer. Let's take it to another place. I, I read several statistics this, this week that if I sort of put those statistics together and average them out, I would say that if I was to ask everyone in this room, do you believe that you are generally mentally healthy? I would get about 50% or a little bit less of you saying, yeah, I think I'm generally mentally healthy. That's one in two. But let's even go further. What if we just asked ourselves this question? Do my thoughts and emotions make my life easier or harder? Well, if I look at it that way, then chances are about one out of every one of us in this room has some work to do in this area. We could all move the needle in this area of mental health in our lives, um, having a healthy mind. Uh, so, and by the way, the, the solution we're going to talk about today is not something that's going to, if you do have a diagnosed mental health issue or, or you're, you're struggling with something like that, this isn't something that's going to magically make everything better. What we're talking about today is something that is going to move the needle no matter where you are. If you put this in play in your life, it's going to have you, help you have a healthier mind. So we're going to talk about how do we have that gift that Jesus wants to give us. And in order to do that, we're going to go to the book of Philippians. So if you uh, have your Bible with you and you want to turn ahead, we're going to Philippians chapter 4. It's ground zero of what the Bible has to say about having a healthy mind. It's written uh, by the Apostle Paul under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Now, just something really quickly about the Apostle Paul. Writing to the church at Philippi, he is in prison. So when you read the book of Philippians, everything that you read has been written out of a, uh, out of a prison. Now, this is an ancient prison. Take whatever your current idea of the worst prison life there is, multiply it by five or ten. This is what Paul's having to deal with. An ancient prison wasn't fit for anybody to live in. And yet, Paul is writing about what it means to have uh, an incredibly healthy mind. So he was physically in prison, that's true, but mentally he was free and his world was expansive. Dr. Adrian Rogers, probably one of the greatest preachers of the last century, and he was preaching on this topic and he said, you know, there are all kinds of prisons. Some of us today are living in a prison of fear. Oh, we're physically free. But there's something that we're scared of, and it sort of hangs over us like a cloud all the time. And we don't get to live the life that we should get to live. We don't get to be free in our thoughts, and we don't, we don't enjoy life because that cloud is always hanging over, overhead. So we're physically free, but our mind is in a prison. Some of us are in a prison of self-pity. And we see everybody else around us. It seems like their lives are so great, but our life doesn't seem like it's what it should be. And we sort of throw a little self-pity party. Why don't I have better stuff? Why don't I have a better life? Why don't I have a better relationship like the people that are around me? And physically we're free, but our mind is in that prison. Some of us are in a prison of anger. And little things set us off and we throw big tantrums. And then we have big messes to clean up after the fact. Physically we're fine, we're free, but... Our mind is in a prison. So Paul is physically in a prison, but he's gonna tell us how you can have a free mind, how you can be mentally healthy. And he's just gonna open up by saying, the first thing you need to do is always be full of joy in the Lord. I say that again, rejoice. So he's saying, first, you need to find the good in your situation. Nobody in this room is going through a situation that is 100% bad. There's always a mix of good and bad. It may be 95-5, it may be 80-20, but somewhere there's good in your situation. And while you don't have control over the percentages, you have control over the focus. 
You have control over determining what part of that situation you're going to direct your attention to. So that's what Paul's saying. He's like, we need to focus on the positive. And then he says, let everyone see that you are considerate in all you do. And the Greek word that comes over here is considerate means that you're not reactive. That you're cautious in how you respond to things. Right? And as a culture, we're very reactive. Sometimes it means, by being considerate, it means we don't immediately post on that thread, or we don't immediately send a, a, an email back, or we don't immediately cut loose at one of our kids when they do something that makes us upset. So he's saying the next thing you do, need to do is be balanced in the way that you, that you approach things. Then he says, remember, the reason that you need to do that is the Lord is coming soon. Don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Tell God what you need and thank him for all he has done. And we talked about that just a, just a few weeks ago when we talked about the worry cycle. Remember, we had the little exercise cycle on the stage and we talked about that. Um, then he says, then you will experience God's peace, which exceeds anything we can understand. Now see if this sounds familiar. His peace will guard your hearts and minds. Remember, Jesus said, I want to give you peace for what? For your hearts and minds, for your thoughts and for your emotions as you live in Christ Jesus. Okay, so I want to talk to the person in this room that would say, now, Jonathan, I'm trying to do those things. I'm trying to see the good in my situation. I'm, I'm trying to pray to God about what I'm worried about. I'm trying to show gratitude for what is good in, in, in my life. I'm trying to do all those things that he just said. It's still not working for me. I'm still feeling like uh, my mind is in prison sometimes. Well, here's the thing. We're not done yet. And this is one of the kind of the, the troubles with messages that I've heard from other preachers on, in the past. And sometimes they separate these, this passage out into two parts when it, we, should all, we should look at it in, in in totality together. Because then Paul says, and now dear brothers and sisters, one final thing, and I'm not a Bible language scholars, scholar, but Bible language scholars tell us that, that words, the words that get translated one final thing means, and here's the rest. The Apostle Paul's saying, I'm gonna tell you what the rest of this is. I've given you part of it, now I'm gonna give you the rest of it. And he says, here's the rest. Fix your thoughts on what is true and honorable and right and pure and lovely and admirable. Think about things that are excellent and worthy of praise. He said, I'm going to give you the rest. I'm giving you part of it. Now I'm going to give you the rest. And the rest is this. Fix your thoughts. And then he gives us a series of mental filters. Well, then what does it mean to fix your thoughts? And why is he telling us to, uh, to do that? Well, I want you to, for a minute, do this little mental exercise with me. I want you to think about maybe you're shopping for a house with your spouse. You're going out with a realtor and you're looking at all these different homes. You finally find the perfect house. You walk through it and you're like, you tell your spouse, honey, this is our uh, dream home. It's a perfect family home. It's six bedrooms, one bath, you know. Um, no, I'm serious. You're like, this, is, this is great. This is exactly what we've been looking for. But as you walk through the main hallway, you notice on the wall is this. And you ask your realtor, what's that? And the realtor's like, well, that's your climate panel. You say, that's a thermometer. Well, yeah, that's your climate panel. Well, where's the thermostat? Oh, this house doesn't have one. You're kidding, right? No, what, what, I don't understand. The climate panel, it's a thermometer. Well, where, where's, how, I, what's the, where's what the climate control? No, I didn't call it the climate control panel. I just called it the climate panel, right? Because this is one of the highest quality thermometers you can buy. Believe me, whatever the temperature is, you're going to get a very accurate reading from this. Well, if you're like me, you're not buying that house because you understand that whether it is 30 degrees outside or 100 degrees outside, all this has the power to do is give you the depressing news, right? All this is, a thermometer is just a reflection of what's going on outside. 
And if that's all you have in your house, the temperature in your house is basically gonna be what the temperature is outside your house. See where I'm going with this? If it is 30 degrees outside, your thermometer is just gonna tell you it's about 35 degrees inside. If it's 100 degrees outside, your thermometer is just gonna tell you it's 110 degrees inside, right? So you wouldn't buy that house because you don't want a house that is always like what the outside is like. That's part of why you want a house. We want something called a thermostat. You probably want one a little bit more technology forward than this, but we want a thermostat, right? Because a thermostat has the power to change what's going on inside because you can set it. It doesn't just have a thermometer. It also has this little thing where you can say, all right, this is the, and by the way, you understand this is the first test of marital compromise when you get married, <laughs> right? Because when the temperature is like this outside, my wife likes to keep it at 72 and I like to keep it at, you know, 85. It's cold out there. But you can set it, right, to where you want it to be. And the, the wonderful HVAC system in your house kicks in. If it's, if it's too cold, you set it warmer. And warm air comes in until it reaches where you want it to be. If it's too hot, you set it colder. And cold air comes in until the, it approximates the temperature that you want. You get to choose what the temperature is inside your house. And you know how you know because you have a thermostat and you can set it. If you walk into a home and you see a thermostat and you see a dial, you say, guess what? I can set this and I can make the temperature what I want it to be. If you walk into a house and the only thing there is is a thermometer, then you know that that house is basically just going to be a reflection of what's around it. See, a lot of us have the impression that our thoughts and emotions have to just be a thermometer. They just have to be a reflection of what's going on around us. Whatever's happening in our world, whatever's happening at work, whatever's happening with our family, our thoughts and emotions are basically going to just be a mirrored image of that. If we're, you know, if, if we're around anything that's sad, we're going to be sad. If we're around anything that's happy, we're going to be happy. If our circumstances are, you know, if, if we run into something that's blocking our goal, we're going to be angry. If we, if, you know, if our goal happens to just magically be open, we're going to be happy. But basically, if we treat our minds like that, you recognize that at that point, your circumstances are in control of your life. Whatever it is that you're going through determines how you're gonna think, what you're gonna feel, and what people around you are going to experience. Did you know that a friend of a friend of a friend is impacted by your emotions? Sociologists tell us from research that a friend of a friend of a friend is impacted by your emotions. And so if your emotions are just a thermometer, if they just reflect whatever it is that's going on around you, think about how that impacts not only you, but your world. It's huge. And yet, the Bible tells us that your mind is not a thermometer, it's a thermostat. Why? Because the Apostle Paul says that we are to fix our thoughts on certain things. Well, now, you wouldn't tell somebody to set a thermometer. Imagine if I told my wife, Wendy, hey, it's a little cold in here. Would you do me a favor? Would you turn up the thermometer? She's going to look at me like I'm crazy. Because you can't set a thermometer. Nobody would ask you to set a thermometer because you can't set a thermometer. But it, does, it makes perfect sense to my wife if I say, sweetheart, it's a little cold in here. Would you do me a favor? Would you turn up the thermostat? Because you can set the thermostat. So when the Apostle Paul says that we are to fix our thoughts, he's saying you recognize that your mind is a thermostat, not a thermometer. You have power over your thoughts and emotions. A lot of us didn't think we had a choice. But the truth is you have power over your thoughts and your emotions. And the Apostle Paul is gonna tell us how to, how to use this thing, right? 
Imagine being in a wonderful home with a great climate control system, but you never use your thermostat. Well, that's going to be just as miserable if all you had was a thermometer. You need to know how to use the thermostat, right? So we're going to talk about how do you use the thermostat in your mind and emotions so that you have a healthy mind. And Paul's going to coach us up on that. So here we go. Paul's going to say, if you want to know how to set the thermostat of your thoughts and emotions, the first thing you need to do is you need to decide if what you focus on, if what you're focusing on is true or not. It needs to be true. And in this context, true means, and I'm going to go to that slide. In this context, true means what is, not what might be. Now, if you're like me, and you struggle with worry or anxiety, and I told you weeks ago, this is a huge thing for me. I am a chronic worrier. Right? I'm probably a pathological worrier if there is such a thing. Right? But a, a worrier or a person who's anxious is a person who is obsessed not with what is but with what might be. I can see all the potential things coming down the pike that could go wrong, the ways that my family could get sick, way that financial trouble could come, way that I, ways that I could end up messing something up that's important to me. And I don't know if I have any, anybody in this room who can, who can identify with this because you go through the same sort of struggles, but I'm, I'm, I'm telling you, when we, when we worry, we become obsessed with what might be. And Paul is saying that is basically going to take you to the wrong mental temperature. If you want to set that mental thermostat, you need to focus on what is, not what might be. Can I show you this little statistic? I ran across this this week and I thought it was helpful um, given my trouble with worry. Of the things that we worry about, behavioral psychologists have measured this longitudinally, and of the things that we worry about, did you know that 85% of them don't happen? 85% of the things that we stress out about and write mental checks to, that we're, we're seeding off resources, mental resources, time, energy, they don't happen. Well, that tells me a lot because that means almost nine out of 10 things I'm worried about, it's a complete waste of time. Yes, I'm writing mental checks, but basically I'm writing those mental checks and then putting them down the shredding machine. I'm not getting anything back from it. But now if you are as bad as I am in terms of being an anxious person, if you are at the level of anxious that I am, you're looking at this and you're going, yes, but look, 15 of 100 things still have, it's worse than I thought. <laughs> so let's talk about the 15%. We're just going to take that slice of the pie out for a minute. And here's what we've learned from uh, behavioral scientists and social scientists. Of that 15%, 70% of it we're going to cope better with than we thought. Of those things that do happen, we're going to cope better with it 70% of the time. That's the most conservative figure. One study says 79% of the time. But depending on how you do the math, that's four out of 100 things that you're going to experience and also that it's going to be as hard to cope with as you thought. Four out of 100 things that you're stressed out and worried about are going to be a reality in your life and be as bad as you thought. All the rest of them, it was a waste of time. The worry was a waste of time. And the worry itself is taking a toll on us as a human being. So it's important. Paul is saying, look, you need to focus on what is, not what might be. Jesus weighs in on this in, chapter, in Matthew chapter 6 where he says, don't worry about tomorrow for tomorrow will bring its own worries. Today's trouble is enough for today. What Jesus is saying is we were only designed as human beings to carry one day's worth of trouble at a time. Those of you who've been here for years, because um, I've been here for a little over nine years, so if, if, if you've been here that long, you probably can tell that I've put on about 20 pounds of integrity and character. <laughs> and uh, recently I stepped on the scales and I recognized that trend was going to continue unless I did something about it. So I joined the gym 
which some of you know, because some of you have, have, have bumped into me at the gym. Jonathan, what are you doing here? And I'm like, I don't know what I'm doing here. Um, <laughs> so, you know, I do my little exercises and go through the routine and the stuff that I do. Um, and then, uh, just for self-esteem, and if nobody's looking, I'll go over to the free weights area. Now, nobody with a body like this should be over in the free weights area, Right? But I, I pick up some of those, you know, weights. I have this, grab the 20-pound weights and I do, you know, like three reps. And I feel good about myself after that, right? Um, but I, I don't know why I do it. I just figure, you know, and I'm, I'm there already. I might as well try to bulk up, you know. Um, it's never going to happen, by the way. But anyway. Um, but here's what I want you to think about. Suppose that I go there and it's a Monday and I say to myself, well, I'm going to be coming back Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. You know, 20 pounds per day. You know what? I'm just going to lift 100 pounds today. So I, so I find some weights there that I can get that are 100 pounds each, and I try to lift them with my, with, with, with my arms. Now, here's what's going to happen. What's going to happen is I'm going to end up in the trauma unit at Wesley Hospital. <laughs> because I can lift that weight over time, but I wasn't meant to lift it today. Not all at once. That's not how I'm... I, I absolutely can lift 20 pounds per arm over five days each. But if I try to lift that aggregated weight in one day, it's going to hurt me. And this is what we have to learn in our mental life is that we are only built to lift one day's weight at a time. If we try to lift a week or a month or heaven forbid, we're lifting a year's worth of anxieties at one time, it is going to end up hurting us and we're going to experience that as taking a toll on our life. Jesus said, today is enough for today. Focus on what is not what might be. By the way, just a quick little detour here. Um, I've been on Facebook more uh, over the last couple weeks as I, than I normally have been. I don't know why. Um, but I've been sort of scrolling through my, my feed. And there was one day that I recognized one entire screen of my computer, all the posts on that screen were either gossip, paranoia, or alarmism. Gossip is somebody trying to impress you by talking about something that either they shouldn't be talking about or they know nothing about. Right? Paranoia is assuming the worst intentions of other people and assuming they're out to get you. Alarmism is, is looking at what's bad about today and projecting the worst possible future about tomorrow. And if the Apostle Paul is right that we need to set our mental thermostats to what is and what might not be, we have to agree together that these things have no place in the Christian life. None of this. None of this. Right? I've got to start you know, blocking that. I've got to be willing to say, no, I don't need this in my life. I only need to focus on what is, not what might be. Okay, we're, we're moving on. So the second thing, the second filter is, is it honorable? And here what it means if we sort of look, and again, I spent a lot of time listening to what Bible, Bible scholars had to say about what these words mean, and then I've tried to sort of bring it forward in a way that we could create a checklist from it. Honorable means what I can respect. Is this something that I can respect? As a culture, I think our thoughts have become more and more zoned in on what we feel contemptuous towards. I have this impression that as a culture, we're people who are all simultaneously rolling our eyes at each other, right? We're just frustrated at how people are, and we're frustrated at how things are. And so the, the spirit of contempt is that I'm better than that, or I'm better than that person. Listen, as God followers, we never have license to say that we're better than anyone else. 
right? God created human beings in his image, and so we recognize that every single human being has value, and we should treat them that way. And so we need to focus on what we can respect. What can I value? What can I put emphasis on that is important? And at a certain point, what I'm thinking about shouldn't be what I'm examining that's wrong with the world. Sometimes I feel like every once in a while I run into somebody that I feel like they think God has given them a police badge to walk around the world and figure out what's wrong with everybody. All right, what's wrong with you? Let's figure you out. And what's wrong with you? Let's figure... I mean, seriously, God hasn't created any of us to go be the watchdog to figure out what's wrong with the world. As a matter of fact, God has called us to emphasize what is right in this world. If anybody should see the hands of God working behind the scenes, it should be God followers. So what can I respect, right? We're gonna move on quickly. The next thing is, is it right? The next thing on my checklist, I need to, I need, as I'm filtering my focus, the thing that I'm focusing on, is it right? Now, first of all, right or righteousness has to do with what fits with God's character. So that's uh, sort of an entry point, but let's go deeper. Not only is it something that fits with God's character, but it's something that is grace and truth in balance. Look at what the Bible says about Jesus. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of what? Grace and truth. They balance each other. Because to not tell the truth, but to give grace is to leave somebody on a collision course with a bad future. But to tell someone the truth and to not provide grace is to stand over someone and beat them with a whip. That's not the example that God left for us. God left for us an example of grace balanced with truth. I had to block two people from my Facebook feed this past week. And they were, their posts were right next to each other, right? Right on top of each other. The first was a post from someone who, they, they, they shared a news story that was applauding the decisions that had been made in New York and then the decision that was almost made in Virginia regarding abortion. Now, I'm not sure how we've gotten here. And I'm, you know, I'm in my late 30s, so my, my whole life, uh, the sort of American weirdness that we've had about abortion has been part of my, my, my life as far back as I can remember. But I have no idea how we got as far down this road as we've gotten. It's, it's absolutely amazing me. Now, I will talk with anybody about their views if we can do it respectfully. I'm interested in hearing other people's viewpoints. I'm not one of those people that says, don't show me anything that doesn't agree with what I feel or think. But I will tell you something. To treat a human being like a worthless, disposable piece of non-human tissue is as far from the truth as we can get. It's as far as we can get. I'm all, about, I'm all about human rights, but let's be clear about this. When we're talking about ending an, an intentional intervention to end the life of a child with its own heartbeat and its own DNA, when we're talking about that, we're not talking about a reproductive rights issue. We're talking about a baby's right to live issue. A, baby's, a baby deserves a fair chance at life. And so when I, when, when I saw this article, it's not that I'm trying to say I don't want to see anything that opposes my viewpoint, but when I'm seeing florid celebration of something that is as far from the truth as that is, I don't need that in my life. I, need, I, I, don't, I don't need that in my life, so I blocked that. But the very next thing on my feed is from somebody I've known my, my entire life. And I think this is a good person. I, I, I believe that, but this person has over the past few years become sort of a self-styled political watchdog. 
um, and, and is posting political cartoons and vitriolic sarcasm towards the other side and constantly sort of lobbing these verbal hand grenades across the fence. And, and while I, I probably agree in principle with, what, with some of what this person is saying, I blocked it because there is zero grace in how this person is approaching it. It's all very one-sided. Now here's the deal. I've lost faith in any political party to help us out at this particular juncture in our country, but I will tell you this, if there is any hope for our country, at some point, people are gonna have to start listening. Right now, we have two sides talking and nobody listening. At some point, there's gonna have to be respectful approaching the truth. And Christians should lead the way. Jerry Falwell used to say, if it's Christian, it ought to be better. So I believe this. I believe in this world and in this country and in the situation that we find ourselves in, Christians should always be leading the, leading the, the march towards truth in a spirit of grace. Should always be truth in an attitude of grace. If we don't have an attitude of grace, guess what our position should be? Mouth closed, ears open. Until we're ready to handle it in an attitude of grace. But you know what? When we can handle it in an attitude of grace, we need to have a voice in this world to speak truth. Does that make sense? A balance between grace and truth. Now, here's the next thing. So Paul says, if we make it through all those filters, here's the next one. The next filter is, is it pure? Is the thought that I'm thinking pure? And in this case, if we kind of look at what uh, the word means, if we bring it over into English, it really means not even a little bit rotten. That, that clears it up pretty good. When I was... Uh, Years ago, before I came to New Spring, I was working at First Baptist Church of Edmond, Oklahoma, which is just on the north side of Oklahoma City there. And uh, I had a very long day, and at the end of the day, it was very clear that I was going to have to stay at church and work a little bit longer before I could go home. And I was hungry, and so I decided to go get takeout. It was a very fancy restaurant on the corner, so I went and got takeout there from the 7-Eleven. Um, <laughs> there was a certain kind of snack cake that I liked a lot. So I got these snack cakes, and I got a soda pop, because back then, it didn't matter what I ate. I didn't put on any integrity and character. Um, it's changed since then. But so I'm sort of doing my work and mindlessly opening up one of these packages for one of these snack cakes. I won't tell you what kind of snack cake it is, but they quit making it for a little while and I was going through withdrawals. But <laughs> So I open this up and I'm getting ready to eat it. And out of the corner of my eye, I see a black spot. Now, if you know what snack cake I'm talking about, you know that there's not supposed to be a black spot. So I sort of pull it down and take a look at it. And sure as the world, there is about a dime-sized spot of mold on the end of the snack cake. That wasn't the manufacturer's problem. It turned out these were past the date. But now I have, uh, I have a conundrum. I can either cut the end off and eat the rest, <laughs> or I can throw it away. What do you think I did? I threw it away. Of course I threw it away. <laughs> what, are you kidding me? I don't want to see that thing ever, ever again. It put me off that kind of snack cake for two months. It just flipped my stomach whenever I'd see the boxes in the stores. I read this verse and it's as though God says to me, Jonathan, you're so much more careful with what you put in your stomach than what you put in your mind. You're not okay with putting something that's 10% rotten in your stomach. Why do you, why you keep telling me that what, you know, this particular relationship or this particular entertainment or this thing that's in your life, why do you keep telling me, well, it's mostly okay. It's mostly good. There's a little bad, but it's mostly good. You wouldn't do that at a restaurant. My soup has a hair in it. Take it away, you know. <laughs> How often do we excuse what we put in our mind and we say, well, it's, you know, it's more good than it is bad. But we wouldn't eat that way. 
And we need to make sure that what we're, you know, if we're setting our mental thermostat, we don't need to be able to, it needs to not be something you have to make an excuse for. What you're dwelling on, what you set your mental thermostat on needs to not be something you have to make an excuse for. It needs to be something that you say, no, that's not even a little bit rotten if we want to have a mentally healthy life. Moving on. So the next thing is this. The next thing is, is it lovely? And in this case, lovely means something that's pleasing, something that brings me pleasure, something that makes me smile. Oh, there's a lot of stuff in this world that makes, makes us frown, right? As I said before, you, walk, you go through Facebook, and it's like you go through all the emotions. If you've got a thermometer for a mind, it's like you read through Facebook, I'm happy, I'm sad, I'm upset, I'm really angry, right? It's back and forth, depending on whatever you happen to be reading at the, at the time. There's a lot of stuff that doesn't make us smile. The point is, we set our thermostat on things that do make us smile. I'll give you an example. Um, the other day, this is a couple days ago, my wife says, hey Jonathan, come check this out on Facebook. And as I told you, my, my experience lately with Facebook hasn't been all the greatest, and so I was a little hesitant. She said, no, you're gonna love this. So I came over and she showed me this, this uh, post on her, on her wall. It was from years and years ago. It was one of those time machine kind of things. It was from back when we were living in Oklahoma, and this time of year there had been a snow and an ice storm sort of shut down the city. And our daughter, who at the time, our oldest, who was at the time she was four, she wanted to go outside in the snow, so we bundled her up, and she wanted to sled. We had a little bit of an incline in our backyard, and she wanted to sled, but problem was, we didn't really have anything for her to sled with. And so my wife said, hey, we've got this really sturdy laundry basket. It's just like the perfect size for her. We'll put her in there, and she can hold on to either side, and we can push her around. Worked great at first. I mean, we, we took her out there, and Wendy pushed her around, kind of made these little ruts in the snow, and she kind of got some speed going, and it was, it was a lot of fun. She was having a good time. I could watch this on the video. I thought, oh, that's so sweet, you know? But then you could hear on the video, Wendy goes, I'm tired, you push. Now, the thing is, moms push their kids in sleds differently than dads push their kids in sleds, you see? Because Wendy's goal was for Cheyenne to have a good time. My goal was for her to set a new land speed record, you know? So I'm pushing her a little faster than Wendy was, and right at the end of the video, I'm pushing her so fast that the, the basket leaves my hands. You can see it's going so fast it just takes off, and she's headed towards the end of the little rut that we've made with the thing. You can kind of see this happening like a train wreck before it happens, you know? And she hits the end of that rut and just topples out into the snow. And so I'm, not, I'm watching this now in this video, and my little four-year-old hops up, dusts herself off, kind of looks toward the sky, and she says, thank you, God, for soft snow to land on. <laughs> that makes me smile. If you're a parent in this room, you understand that parenting is the hardest job you will ever do. You know, I mean, it doesn't matter how difficult your work life is, doesn't matter how difficult other elements of your life is, nothing will ever challenge you like being a parent. And to hear your little kiddo look up to the heavens and say, thank you, God, for soft snow to land on, it just, it makes, me, it makes me realize the redeeming factor of putting in this time and energy into this precious life who's developing her own relationship with God. It makes me smile. But there's so many things in this world that get my attention instead of those things. And what Paul is saying is, look, if you want to have a healthy mind, what are the things that are redeeming that make you smile? Set your thermostat to those things. Say, if I'm going to dwell on something, I'm going to dwell on the things that make me smile. Right? Does that make any sense? So then we move on. Here's the next thing. He says it also, if you're going to set your thermostat on something, it needs to be something that's admirable. And by admirable here, we mean is it something you would publicly support? I'll give you this as a little mental exercise. Suppose God installs a marquee over your head that's going to scroll the thoughts that are going through your head 
you know, for all to see. But he also gives you an on-off switch, so you can turn it off and on when you want to. My question is this, when would you turn it on? Would you turn it on at work? Would you be cool with your coworkers reading what you were thinking? Would you turn it on at the dinner table? Would it be cool with you if everybody in your family read what you were thinking? How about when it's you and your spouse? See, most of us, we would leave that puppy off all the time. Now, the, the brain is a random thing. There's all sorts of mental hiccups that go through our mind, thoughts that are sort of random. I'm talking about what we're dwelling on. Would we be okay with our family, with our coworkers? Would we want them to know where our mind camps out? See, the thing is, Paul says, if you're gonna set your mental thermostat, it should be on something that you wouldn't mind the world knowing about. You, wouldn't, you would think that people would understand why you're thinking about that and that they would applaud you for thinking about that. Is it something you would publicly support? And then finally, he's gonna sort of wrap it up with a couple last things. First off, he says, is it excellent? And in this case, excellent means unusually wonderful. Last week, we had a watermark weekend and I stood up there in that baptistry with four brothers and sisters in Christ, listened to their testimony and baptized those four people. That is unusually wonderful. But as a pastor, I could just mark that down as just another part of my job, as another part of my ministry and walk past it and not think anything of it. But Paul's saying, if I wanna be mentally free and I, have a very, and I wanna have mental health, I need to be willing to recognize things that are unusually wonderful and I need to lean into it. I recently had an opportunity to talk with one of the world's top scholars on how people cope with stress. And she was talking to me about people who are, um, who are caregivers for someone who is um, passing away in the hospital. They're a caregiver for a family member who is terminal and is dying. And she was talking to me about how these caregivers report less stress if the window is facing towards the sunrise. And she said, because there's something about being in that room and watching the sunrise that people lean into and it gives them some respite from what they're going through. See, it is so important for us to be, to be, to able, excuse me, to be able to recognize and to be able to lean in things that are unusually wonderful. And then finally, he says, is it worthy of praise? And here the word that comes translated over, worthy of praise, also uh, sometimes gets translated just a blessing. What are things that are blessings in my life? I have, I'm, I'm married to the most beautiful woman in the world. That is a blessing. She's beautiful inside and out. I have two wonderful daughters. They're blessings to me. We, I serve a wonderful church. I, I, you know, I live in a wonderful home. Uh, I have a wonderful dog. They're blessings to me. I could ignore them and just focus on the things that are stressful or I could count my blessings. Remember the old song? Count your blessings, name them one by one. Count your many blessings, see what God has done. Why was that song so popular? It's because we forget to do it. We need a reminder to think about what our blessings are, to set our mind on those things. So let me ask you, what are you thinking most of the time? Where's your mindset? It's funny, isn't it, that we use the term in popular culture, we talk about mindset, it's because you can set your mind. The question is, where's the dial gonna be? I wanna give you a little exercise to think about doing this week. So if you've been taking notes, you have now a little checklist, or you should have by now a little checklist, um, or maybe on the app, or you can, later today it'll be on Facebook so you can get it off of there. But here's the little homework assignment I'd love to give you. I'd love for you to go home and think about five things in your life 
that fit all the criteria. Five things that you could think about that meet all the criteria that we just talked about. Make yourself a little list. And then say, for this week, just for this week, I'm going to commit that when I find my thoughts and my emotions sort of getting away from me, I'm going to choose to think about one of these things. And it's going to be my way of setting that mental thermostat so that I can experience the gift that Jesus said he wanted to give me, peace for my thoughts and for my heart. See, here's the deal. If we want to make an impact on this world, please hear me. If we want to make an impact on this world, we're going to have to be different on the inside than the world on the outside. We're going to have to be willing to choose to filter our focus so that we can make a difference in this world. Let me pray. Father, thank you so much for being with us today in the service. I pray that each of us would understand the power that you've placed in our hands, the ability to filter what we focus on so that we can experience your best in our life and in our healthy minds. And pray that you would give us a passion for thinking the way that you want us to think. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks so much for being here this week.